Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and uh, today uh, I think it's perhaps going to be one of the most difficult podcast conversations I've hosted since I've been doing this for over two years or almost three years now because it's about the ongoing tragedy unfolding in Palestine um, since the Hamas terror attacks that killed hundreds uh, of Israeli citizens and, and the violence that has been unleashed in the region since. Um, it's been emotional. It's been difficult. You kind of don't know what is truth, what isn't, uh, because of the information operations going on on social media. So I figured that we have a, a bit of a nuanced conversation around this topic with my colleague, uh, Tuka Nuserat, who is director at the Rafiq Hari Center at the Atlantic Council and somebody who's been following this region uh, and conducting research programming uh, analysis of what's going on in the region for a number of years. So I figured that rather than um, have a, a, a sort of unsophisticated conversation on something so complex, I invite Toka to have her share a perspective on what's going on. Uh, Toka's bio is in the in the description below as well. And I've also linked uh, to some of the pieces run by the council over the last few weeks uh, or the last few days um, as this tragedy has unfolded. And before I jump in, I think one of the things I would just flag for all of us as listeners to this podcast or people who are engrossed by what's going on is um, don't forget about our shared humanity. I think there's a lot of people who would rather uh, inflame uh, people's emotions and inflame what we uh, should or should not believe about what's going on. But at the end of the day, if you approach uh, everything from the fact that we're all human beings and we have a shared humanity, it just gets a lot easier uh, to see each other um, in the best light that is possible. So uh, with that, Tuka, thank you so much for taking out the time uh, today in this very difficult moment. And I want to begin this conversation uh, with perhaps you setting the stage uh, for the audience about what happened and why did it happen. Um, of course, there is an ongoing occupation for decades. Um, of course, Hamas is viewed as a terror organization and has done a lot of bad things. Of course, there haven't been elections in, in Gaza since 2006, if I remember. Um, but at the end of the day, as somebody who followed it from a South Asia lens developments in the region, there were conversations going on in the run up to these terror attacks in, in focus on Gaza, but also Saudi Israel. And we'll get to that in a minute. So start by setting the scene for the audience about the backdrop to the Hamas terror attacks. And then we'll get into what what is happening now and the implications for things going forward. Sure. Thank you, Uzair, for having me and for um, providing this venue to have this kind of discussion, which, as you alluded to, is is difficult um, for anyone working on this region. This is a conflict that has um, existed for several decades and touches many, many people's lives in different ways. But, um, you know, where we got today kind of setting the scene, I think many of your viewers and listeners and observers will have read the news and um, understood some of the more immediate details of what happened. But we, um, as, as observers uh, of, of the region, um, understand that there, there have been um, many uh, factors that have ignited the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on different fronts um, in different points of the past 10 to 15 years, um, escalating uh, in different ways. But 
Almost immediately, as you mentioned, on October 7th, Hamas launched an attack where they breached the border uh, from between Gaza and um, the Israeli territories and um, inflicted an assault that, that resulted in the killing of 1,200, um, about 1,200 or 1,300 Israelis so far. Um, this is this came as quite a shock to the international community, uh, not just in terms of the the horrific number of casualties, but also because of it, of Hamas's ability to um, infiltrate, penetrate, and um, uh, you know come under the radar of uh, Israeli intelligence, which is you know one of the most well known um, intelligence agencies around the world. What we are hearing now and seeing, of course, time will tell how how um, is, how Hamas was able to to do that. Um, there, there's been talk about how uh, is, Israel was focused in a number of ways on the West Bank and it has been um, targeting Palestinians. That um, saying that there's been um, movement, especially in cities like Jenin, there's been organizing by Palestinian, uh, different different Palestinian militant groups, um, uh, and they claim that they're preempting some of that. And so it, just in 2022 was, um, in 2022 was the uh, bloodiest year for Palestinians since 2004. So, um, and in just in 2023, this year, before this, um, before this attack happened, you had um, also a, a very high number of Palestinians um, being killed, mostly in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. We saw in 2021 also, um, uh, you know, an increase in, uh, you know, another another escalation in the aftermath of the tensions um, in uh, East Jerusalem, where Palestinians were protesting Israeli um, policies that are aimed at evicting Palestinians from their homes, especially in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. And um, especially in 2021, social media was a big factor in kind of bringing out the Palestinian voice to the rest of the world. So um, from, from, from different perspectives, you could say that this was a surprise uh, from Hamas only insofar as how much damage it was able to inflict on Israel. But in terms of um, escalations, these have happened over the past several years between Hamas and other militant groups and um, and Israel. So um, where we are today is a very difficult situation where um, Israel's attacks on Gaza right now are inflicting incredible damage on Palestinian civilians. Of course, Israel is saying that it wants to root Hamas out of Gaza um, and, you know, telling uh, one million Palestinians to move from North Ga northern Gaza to the southern part is, you know, as, as the international community has noted, is nearly impossible um, uh, in terms of its attempts to, you know, stem the, the loss of civilian life. So we're we're at a very difficult place where Gaza has already been um, under siege for uh, since 2007, when Hamas was elected um, by by Gazans, by Gazans, and um, <clears throat> the majority of the international community, including Israel, of course, decided to impose a siege, where um, you know a lot of uh, a lot of the economic um, impact has been devastating for 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 the Palestinians. So um, very little. Uh, economic activity with the rest of the world that has 
made the lives of Palestinians in Gaza incredibly difficult. And uh, we're faced with a situation right now where because of how um, how high uh, the tensions are right now and uh, the incredible loss of life, there may uh, there may be other parties getting involved. You've had the U.S., of course, supporting Israel, but there are other parties, um, Hezbollah, maybe the Houthis in in Yemen, that may get involved and expand this into a regional war, which is which is the fear um, right now. Thanks for that overview, and I think uh, it it is a good segue into sort of another question I had, right? Because you follow this region, and I've sort of on the Afghanistan side followed sort of the 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 logic of militant movements and terror organizations and how they tend to operate. Um, often, the lay person who doesn't know much about how these orgs work does not think that there's a strategy behind the madness of using terrorism, but often there is. Um, and I wanted to get a sense from you, right? So in the in the run up to these terror attacks, if I sort of filter my Google or the audience filters their Google prior to this attack, there was engagement between Israel and Hamas. There were conversations about work permits and reducing the barriers at the border. But then this happens, right? From your point of view, I know it's still very early, but what is the broader strategic calculus under which Hamas is operating, right? Because there's also, in my view, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, a very simplistic view here that says Hamas is an Iranian proxy and Iran did not want Israel-Saudi normalization to happen. So they basically did this and this ends the process right now because everybody's inflamed. Um, I, per, at a personal level, as a non-expert, find it quite simplistic as a take. Um, so I was wondering if you could help the audience understand, in your view, from Hamas's point of view, what's the strategic calculus of doing this and unleashing so much devastation on Israeli citizens and then unleashing much more devastation on Palestinian citizens in Gaza? Mm -hmm. I think, look, Hamas, uh, first and foremost, I believe is answering to the people that elected them in Gaza and more broadly the Palestinian populace that sees right now very little movement, very little representation for their cause, for their struggle. Um, I don't believe that Hamas first and foremost is getting instructions uh, from Iran. It does get support, it does get um, you know, support in many ways, economic, military. But Hamas's number one audience is is um, are the Palestinian people, and for for the people in Gaza who have been under siege for seventeen years, there's very little to lose at this point. And Hamas uh, is is struggling economically to provide for two million Gazans. Um, it's seeing uh, the crackdown that has happened on the West Bank and East Jerusalem. It's seeing the incredibly extremist right wing government that has that Netanyahu has put together that has instigated and that has um, tightened the noose on Palestinians in many ways. And at this point, there's very little there's very little response that that Hamas can provide that is not going to push the Palestinians even further into the abyss of the misery that they're in. So at this point, Hamas has little to lose. It may be that Israel's continued focus on the West Bank gave Hamas an opportunity to enter this this uh, this 
conflict and attempt this. But I think we have to wait and see what is some of the um, dynamics that maybe have led to this that strengthened Hamas in a way that allowed this to happen. Um, in terms of, we'll talk a little bit, I think, about the Saudi normalization potential, but um, I don't think that's the number one motivating factor. Yeah, well, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So again, sticking to the to the the the, the situation on the ground, right? Again, um, a lot of noise in conversation. So what I often do is again, uh, somebody who looks at economic data a lot, right, is to go search mm -hmm. for data. So over the mm -hmm. last week, for example, I've been looking at some in-depth surveys and polls of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza to understand how their views have evolved. And this is all pre-conflict data that was there. And one thing that stuck out to me was that increasingly over time, if you read some of these surveys, it turns out that more and more Palestinians, especially Palestinians in the West Bank, kind of say, we, we, we'll we take a one-state solution with equal rights, so about 25% or 30% close to polling, right? Mo much more mm -hmm. so than in Israel for the same question, mm -hmm. for example. And then, of course, there's a lot of negativity around Israel for reasons that you just explained. But help us understand like how, from your point of view, in, in sort of the fallout of this conflict as, as the days mm -hmm. and months go by, what is likely to happen in terms of Palestinian views, particularly younger citizens' views about Israel and also the United States, given the way in which the United States has sort of like stood by and basically given a free hand uh, to Netanyahu's government to respond to Hamas's terror attacks? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think anyone in the Arab world is surprised about the U.S. position. I think um, the U.S. has defended Israel's um policies in, in the West Bank and Gaza and supported Israel economically and militarily. Uh, how Palestinians will view, I mean, during these times where they're, you know, they see people being killed, you know, by Israeli warplanes and missiles is very hard to, I think if you would take the survey again, um, at this point, have anyone that, you know, identifies with anything other than um, majority will continue to push for uh, independent Palestinian state. I think you see um, they recognize the realities on the ground are diminishing incredibly in terms of the ability to have a actual Palestinian state that is connected, that is contiguous because of the increase in settlements, because of the facts on the ground that are changing rapidly every single day, including by um, by by this extremist government. So while that's that may be the ultimate hope for most Palestinians to have an independent state, at this point, they have generations of um, members of the same family whose grandparents have, have experienced the struggle and fathers and children. Uh, they may be willing to accept a one state solution where they're equal, you know, with uh, with Israelis. Of for the majority of Israelis, that's not an acceptable solution. So um, it's, it's you know, at a stalemate on that on that potential idea. But I think for the for most Palestinians during this height of um, Palestinian Israeli, you know, engagement and uh, obviously attacks, it's they're going to call for whatever they feel, um, whichever entity pushes their right to exist. Um, advocates for their, 
you know, freedom and, you know, kind of un unshackling them from, from, from the Israeli occupation that impacts every single part of their lives um, on a daily basis, whether they're in the West Bank or in Gaza, where Israel withdrew its forces, but continues to effectively uh, have control over its borders, over access to the sea, and, and uh, as you mentioned, like, for example, work permits, um, Yes, Hamas has to work with Israel on on those, and there are Palestinians that go into into Israel proper to work, trying to address some of the economic uh, challenges that that uh, Gazans face, of course. But this has also been used as a tool. So whenever there's in August, I believe Israel reduced the number of permits um, to when when it was when there was um, when it accused Hamas of doing things in the West Bank. So this is. Again, if it's in the hands of Israel, it's going to be uh, un, you know, unreliable source of, um, you know, economic uh, growth for the Palestinians. On the sort of broader regional side, if you were to sort of zoom out into the region, um, what has been sort of um, what has stood out to you in terms of the response and reaction? Right, of course, at, at, at in terms of when this first broke out, as I was monitoring it, I sort of in my mind drew a spectrum of saying, okay. Um, sort of the United States is on one end over here in terms of standing with Israel or the European Union. Um, and then you had in the region, Qatar, for example, sort of being the most closely leaning towards Hamas and, and condemning Israel off the bat. UAE was mm -hmm. closer to the United States. Saudi was a bit closer to Qatar. And then you had Jordan, Egypt, sort of, you know, you can draw a spectrum mm -hmm. in the middle. That's how I sort of read these statements initially coming out. But then, of course, mm -hmm. things evolve. The situation is changing. Mm -hmm. um, what have what has stood out to you in terms of the broader global and in particular regional response uh, to this most recent wave of violence uh, in Palestine and Israel? Yeah, I think in the past you've seen the typical condemnations of um, some of the increased, uh, you know, when, whenever there's a big escalation. Um, but uh, but. Right now, I think there was a recognition that this is different, that this is a new phase of the conflict, especially um, as you saw the turning point kind of with the with the attack on the hospital um, and just the large number of deaths there and the gruesome scenes that came from there. I think as the, as the as the casualty number of casualties in Gaza was rising, that was you know directly uh, re related to how the Arab street was responding. Now you have countries like you mentioned, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia that. Um, especially uh, the UAE with its uh, recent signing of the Abraham Accords, carefully worded um, condemnations, but um, secondary condemnations after the incredible rise in casualties in the Palestinians, um, the UAE also had to manage domestic um, concerns. While you won't see large mass protests like you have seen in the streets in Jordan and Egypt and Tunisia and Morocco, uh, you do, there, there's still a sense that um, people in the Arab world, even in the Gulf, um, are, you know, feel connected to the Palestinian cause and feel a sense of injustice has been inflicted on the Palestinians. Um, 
in terms of um, where this goes, I think it's 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 very concerning for uh, Jordan and Egypt. They have the largest borders with Israel. They are worried about potential refugee flows. They have publicly rejected the idea of having um, Palestinians displaced in their countries. Um, not necessarily because they don't want to deal with refugees. Jordan has one of the largest, you know, um, refugee num numbers of refugees of Syrians, Iraqis, and and of course Palestinians from from decades ago. But there's a sense that if Palestinians in Gaza were to leave, they would be very hard for them to return, and that this would be another forced displacement um, of Palestinians like like it was in 1948 and 1967. So each of these countries has to grapple with domestic uh, concerns about how this issue affects them if they have large Palestinian population like in Jordan, but also, um, you know, what are the security concerns they have? The Gulf, uh, Gulf countries have concerns about Iran's backlash. And, you know, countries like Jordan and Egypt have security concerns of the actual conflict just pouring in to their borders. So each of them is trying to manage different challenges at this point. Would it also be fair to got to say that perhaps, you know, one of the bigger challenges here is that a lot of actors, particularly proxy actors in the region, are primed uh, to sort of enter the fray if things, let's say, continue to go in a viciously downward spiral? Um, and I, it, in my sort of scenario planning, I would love your thoughts on sort of scenarios, different scenarios that you're trying to game out here, um, is that more casualties with the invasion into Gaza um, will, will, will charge everyone up more. Hezbollah already is exchanging regular fire on the Lebanese border. Mm -hmm. The Houthis yesterday fired some missiles that U.S. destroyers shot down. Iran is making some statements, but at the same time, you know, MBS and the Iranian president had a phone call. They've never done that before, right? So they also, you see mm -hmm, that they're mm -hmm. some, at some leadership level recognize, let's not allow this to get out of hand. So what are some scenarios that you're watching or things that you're watching out for in terms of Hezbollah and Iraqi militias and what's going on in Syria and Yemen in terms of looking out and saying, okay, is this getting, is this stabilizing at some level and there's hope for a ceasefire or it goes the wrong way and all of a sudden we have regional actors entering the fray led by proxies as, as the beginning over here. Look, um, there are a number of festering unresolved conflicts in the region. You have failed states in Lebanon and Yemen. You have um, obviously the unresolved Syrian conflict. You have economic challenges post-COVID world in a number of these states. So Yes, there are proxies that are waiting to take the opportunity, but these are also conflicts that have left to um, left to fester and left unaddressed. And you, um, you know, a lot of people are saying that uh, the U.S. is disengaging from the region, doesn't want to be engaged in direct conflict. But you know, regional actors have to also assume responsibility for the fact that. Uh, you know, the state, like you mentioned, Hezbollah and the Houthis, both in failed states right now. These are the issues that needed to be addressed so that when a conflict like this emerges, you don't have actors that are, uh, you know, engaging in activities that states would not engage in, you know. So um, addressing some of these conflicts is really important. And that's why um, 
you know, I've been personally critical of some of the, the approach of the Biden administration and prioritizing what it calls um, a regional integration agenda, where let's let's have these um, Abraham Accords peace agreements because they allow us to increase economic uh, trade between between these countries, but they don't address some of the most challenging issues in the region that every time there's a flare up of of in the Palestinian territories, every time there's a flare up um, in Iraq or there's protests in, in Lebanon, for example, like a few years ago, then you have this renewed fear that Iran is going to play into many of these conflicts. We need to address these independent these conflicts independently so that you don't give an opportunity for um, you know, escalating crises in other parts of the world, people are, you know, proxies are just jumping in um, to to make a point and to, you know, renew their um, their existence. I guess you could say on the world stage and their relevance. Yeah, I I I, I would love your more of your thoughts in my next question on sort of critiquing the Biden administration response and sort of the U.S.-China rivalry and how that plays out in 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 the current context, but. You know, I remember at the UN this year, for example, right, when BB stood up and and put out this map that did not even show Palestine. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking in my mind that this is not going to end well, because mm -hmm. here you have a leader of a right wing government that has empowered mm -hmm. settlers who have been occupying mm -hmm. more and more Palestinian lands now daring to mm -hmm. go to the UN, showing mm -hmm. a map that doesn't show a state of Palestine. Um, it's going to inflame a lot of people. And then you mm -hmm. gave the context of what had been happening in the region. And I saw it from my point of view as sort of a South Asia watcher, right? These things with states mm -hmm. with a lot less proxy actors in the South Asian, Northern Himalayan region, mm -hmm. with China, India, Pakistan, even the nine mm -hmm. dot line or dash line in the, in the Straits mm -hmm. in, in the East, it, mm -hmm. states get very agitated when other states tend to do this stuff. So now just imagine mm -hmm. what non-state actors who have used terrorism mm -hmm. as the policy mm -hmm would react. Mm -hmm. And so this was, you know, it, it, it was, I, I agree with you that the administration sort of, you can't wish these things away, the underlying problems in, in the mm -hmm. region and just move ahead with, with these agreements. So would love your thoughts on sort of first up the critique or your point of view of the Biden administration's policy. Again, we know from reporting now, a lot of dissonance at the state department, staffers mm -hmm. from the Hill have written an anonymous letter uh, a very good, strongly worded letter, uh, you know, asking congressmen and women to push for a ceasefire. We've seen rallies in Dearborn. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the line that stood out to me over there was from Pal a Palestinian American activist who said in 2020, the Democrats came to us to save America from Trump. In 2024, we will save Palestinians from Biden. So there mm -hmm. is a political angle here as well. So would love you more of your thoughts about what would you have liked the administration or even now, what would you like them to do a bit differently uh, at this point in time? Look, I think it's hard. I think if the U.S. disengages from the region or it engages from the region, it's going to be criticized. So there's no um, there's no easy route. However, there are a number of issues where the U.S. has leverage and um, where where the Biden administration in prioritizing some of these um, agreements between Israel and the Gulf countries has downgraded some of the most pressing uh, conflicts. You know, um, what's happening in Lebanon is um, is really disastrous. We saw, uh, you know, the, the Lebanese lira, you know, plummet in the past couple of years. 
And there's just there's a number of conflicts where the U.S. is just not interested in engaging on. Um, it has leverage with Saudi Arabia and the UAE on Yemen. It has its own role in Yemen. These are conflicts that I do believe, if left unaddressed, are going to continue to contribute to the instability in the region. If you ask people in the region, they would they would want the U.S. to stick with its, uh, you know, purported um, support for human rights, for democratic values, of course. But since the Arab Spring, the U.S. has not been has not been a supporter of some of these populations, um, as you've seen, uh, you know, a big uh, drawback in, in any progress that was made, even in countries like Tunisia. And you haven't seen the U.S. really lean into that um, because if the only way the U.S. will engage in the region is militarily, then yes, people do not want necessarily uh, to have uh, to have that. But um, what you're seeing here and how it's reflected um, in in audiences in the U.S. and Arab and Muslim and South Asian uh, members of communities here in the U.S. who who represent a significant vote block and who are increasingly involved in um, in local and federal government agencies, um, not just them, uh, but others who are coming out and saying the way we're approaching this issue, the fact that we're not even trying to call for a ceasefire is really unacceptable. The the the, the incredible loss of human life and um, people are starting to recognize that um, U.S. policy can make a difference has 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 been able to and at the same time it's just not changing when it comes to this this conflict it's um we understand there's a long history between the us and israel and uh, all the reasons for for the support of israel but at the same time to stand by and watch israel you know pummel gaza this way uh i think you're going to have a lot of people um, especially in this day and age where they have access to much more information and much more on the ground reporting um, that is just kind of um, hard to look away from, uh, hard to hard to watch and, and have those images beaming into our phones and not feel like we have a role to play as the U.S. We have a role to play to uh, do no harm and to stem some of the some of the killing and some of the some of the you know devastation that's there um you know going back to your initial uh, question about you know biden's engagement in the middle east i do think that much more emphasis has been put on the normalization agreements um with the hopes that if you get a few neighbors um a few people in the neighborhood to make peace then eventually you know that one house that's being targeted or in conflict is is going to solve itself. That that's not that's not the case. That hasn't been the case. You know, the Abraham Accords were signed three years ago, but in, you know, when when Secretary um, Blinken went to the region um, immediately after immediately after October seventh, he he wasn't reaching out um, immediately to the countries that were recently normalized. He was reaching out to Jordan and Egypt that have had. 30, 40 years of peace agreements with Israel. But even those agreements, they've been, um, you know, 
according to the pop the populations of both of those countries, unpopular, but they do provide some leverage. Um, the most immediate agreements are not ones that have been playing into this, and they they haven't contributed to, for example, as you would say, the UAE argument that um, we'll have more leverage with Israel. In fact, the government has only become more emboldened, more extremist, more settlements growing, more uh, statements coming from uh, from from uh, Netanyahu's uh, ministers. Even one of them, you mentioned the map that that Netanyahu put in the UN that doesn't include Palestine. Smotrich, who's who's um, one of his ministers and one of been called out as as really a, a right wing extremist included Jordan in one of the um, images that he had put of a map of, of greater Israel. That really set people on fire in Jordan. So um, I don't think you can continue to have that kind of rhetoric and not have people in the Arab world, uh, you know, feel a sense of uh, desperation and loss of hope and loss of faith in, in the U.S. role in the region. Compared to the U.S. sort of Point of the position, your your points on on the critique of the administration's policy. How do you then see China and its foreign policy in the region? Of course, with the last big story, uh, a success story for the Chinese in the region was sort of like a, a thaw that they brokered uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? A big sort of photo op moment. Um, even now, when I look at sort of let's say in the South Asian or East Asian region. Um, India has walked a very tightrope condemning terrorism, but then insisting um, that it believes in a two-state solution as being the only path forward here. Um, China has taken a similar point of view. And, and sometimes, at least in conversations I've had in D.C., um, some people in the administration are not happy with that position. In fact, Chuck Schumer was in Beijing and apparently did not and sort of said that he was unhappy with China's position. But China sewing its own line and many friends of mine, at least when I talk to them in the region, and particularly in Jordan, uh, say that, hey, the Chinese actually are on the right side here and their, their standing is only going to grow um, as a result of their diplomacy or their public posturing here. So how do you assess the Chinese approach uh, at this point in time? Well, I think the Chinese are trying to take use this opportunity in their favor. They're trying to curry favor with the Arab states um, by by calling for a two state solution. I believe that's the, the their initial response, which angered um, Israeli audiences um, and condemning the loss of life on both sides. It wants to cast the U.S. in a bad light as being kind of a, a negative actor in the region, contributing to instability, not being uh, an even handed um, arbiter between the Israelis and Palestinians. And it's playing on the general mood in the Arab world and the global South more uh, more broadly that is more sympathetic to the Palestinian struggle. So at this point, um, I think, uh, you know, you'll see that as, as the U.S. has been disengaging a little bit from the region, China's playing an increased role. People will tell you, like, China doesn't tell us how to live. It doesn't tell us that we need to have democracy and then and then turn its back and then not support democracy. So uh, people see it as an economic actor right now. It's um, and I think it's using, you know, treading carefully, using this opportunity to appeal to some of the Arab um, voices uh, that are calling for, you know, more critical U.S. policy towards Israel. But at the same time, it's thinking long term, how is it going to play into a potential vacuum if the U.S. were to really um, step away more, more, more and more from the region? 
the way that it's looking right now, that's not going to happen in terms of the U.S. stepping away. It's, it's looking like it's going to be pulled back into the region, especially, as we mentioned, if this conflict goes beyond um, the Israeli-Palestinian borders. Yeah, I think one of the your Global South point, I think, is a very important one. One of the most common questions to which I don't have an answer to is, you know, friends from the Global South asking, well, explain to me how one form of occupation in Crimea or eastern Ukraine is bad. And another form of occupation does not even get a response as an occupation. It's not even called an occupation mm -hmm, in public mm -hmm. pronouncements by the same administration or the same people who will very vociferously mm -hmm. write about how terrible occupation in Europe um, mm -hmm. is. And I, I I, honestly don't have an answer to that. And I just say that's the hypocrisy of a great power and all powers are hypocritical at some point. And uh, we should call out that hypocrisy, right? That the, an occupation, whether it's in Eastern Europe or Eastern Asia or in Palestine is an occupation. And let's start with that conversation and be a bit mm -hmm. more blunt about it. So. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts today um, and explaining to our audiences what's going on and how you see things shaping up in the region. Um, I always ask my guests before I let them go to give some reading recommendations. Uh, most of the time I say it's a topic of your choosing, mm -hmm. but I would appreciate given how little mm -hmm. people know, but how emotionally charged they are about what's going on today. If you could give some reading recommendations to folks mm -hmm. who may want to dive a bit deeper into understanding this conflict and having a more nuanced view about what's going on. Yeah, I would say, you know, there's going to be a, a number of um, versions of history of this conflict. Um, and I think it's important to go to the voices that are um, indigenous and, um, you know, try to diversify um, the, the reading materials. Um, the ones that I personally would recommend, there's the 100 Years War on Palestine by Rashid Khalidi, who is uh, one of the foremost contemporary um, historians of the Palestinian struggle. And um, on a more personal uh, account, there's I Saw Ramallah by Murid Barghouti. Um, this is a book that uh, really captures some of the some of the personal loss that Palestinians experienced um, over the course of this of this conflict, and um, and you know sometimes it helps to humanize um, the issues and understand that we're not just talking about headlines here and geopolitical movements. There are people that are struggling um, behind behind these headlines, and it's important to hear their stories. Thank you for those recommendations. I will put them on my own list as well, because something I've been, you know, your point on indigenous voices is super, super important because I almost am done with this book titled The Dawn of Everything. Um, and it gets into, you know, redefining what you and I perhaps and many of us read in political science and IR classes about the Renaissance and Clausewitz mm -hmm. and all of that. And this book basically takes and flips everything on its head and says that a lot of the renaissance era conversation about what does it mean to be a free human being etc were actually indigenous mm -hmm. societies in north america and the new world that the french mm -hmm. and then the english were in engaging with and the indigenous voices were like you guys are not free you are so oppressive mm -hmm. and all of that and that then fed into the european discourse um, mm -hmm. and when you read that book you realize that 
when you are only told history from a particular perspective, you see that as the only way events shaped up. And that book did a very good, you know, job, at least at a personal level to me, of reminding me that there's a different part of this. And if we go a bit deeper, we realize that um, even the European experience with the Renaissance, uh, one was happening in the backdrop of industrial enslavement of indigenous people, but two, the conversation with indigenous people and their ideas of liberty and freedom fed into the popular discourse of Europe at that time. And so, you know, the, thank you for reiterating that point. I think that's a very important one. And thank you for your time. Thank you Absolutely. for your analysis and the reading recommendations. And uh, I think you and I both can agree on the fact that we need a ceasefire. Uh, we mm -hmm. need humanitarian aid to flow into Palestine, in particular mm -hmm. Gaza. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we need the United States uh, to step up a bit more in terms of calling an ace an ace um, uh, at, at a moment like this and pushing all actors in the region um, uh, to, to, to stop what's going on at this point in time. So thank you and appreciate you joining us today.